Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You never learned how to do instrument flying. That was an act of recklessness to some degree. John Kennedy had broken his ankle and it had the cast removed the day before, but he was still on crutches. And if you've ever broken an ankle, that's gonna hurt for years, but it's gonna be very, very painful the day that they take the cast off. And when you're flying a plane like his, and it's on the ground, you have to steer with pedals and you have to operate those pedals with your feet. And it would have been very, very painful and inconvenient for him to do that. Welcome to episode nine of Fatal Voyage, the death of JFK Jr. I'm your host, ex-homicide cop Colin McLaren. Over the last few episodes, our investigation into the plane crash that took the life of John Jr. has led us down some very dark paths. Our estimates are she was responsible for anywhere from 50 or 100 homicide murders throughout the world. Now we're returning to New York City, where Junior would fall back into his own unique groove, his way of living. Amazingly, he seemed undeterred by the insidious plans of the drug cartel. It was as if he was indestructible, as he again reveled in his position as America's most eligible bachelor. Here's Linda Massarella, who worked as an editor at the New York Post through the 1990s, and Barry Levine, who edited the National Enquirer. It seemed like every other week he was dating a new celebrity. We'd see photographs with him out on the town, with Cindy Crawford, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, a lot. They became quite the item. I think that lasted almost a year. And then he started dating Errol Hanna. There was also rumors that JFK Jr. was fooling around with Princess Diana. Everywhere he went, he was flirting with everybody. He was charms were all over the place. And he was having a good time. John was someone who had women who could have a, any woman in the world that he wanted. Many women were extremely interested in John, from Princess Diana to Madonna to actresses and, and models. But the woman who really captured John's attention was Carolyn Bissett, who was a young publicist for Calvin Klein in New York. As soon as he met Carolyn Bissett, he stopped playing around and became very serious. John Jr.'s burgeoning relationship with Caroline quickly caught the imagination of the American public. 
As presidential historian Doug Weed explains, perhaps even more so than his affairs with celebrities, this romance between the handsome athletic president's son and the beautiful but yet unknown fashion worker seemed to herald the beginning of a new, happier chapter for the Kennedy. One free of true crime dramas. I know the public image, and that the public image was that they were a beautiful couple and that it looked like they had each found their soulmates and that it was going to be very, very hard for John F. Kennedy Jr. to to find the right lady, and it looked very clear that he had. Photographer Lawrence Schwartzfeld took dozens of pictures of John Jr., including many of the early shots of the couple together. They seemed that there was a lot of love between them, and, and you can see that in the photographs that were taken, you know, at events and everywhere else they were together. But I said she, she was very feisty and independent, and she could be, uh, you know, a little more emotional than he was. On September the 21st, 1996, John Jr. finally put his Playboy days behind him. He and Carolyn married in a candlelight ceremony on the remote Georgia island of Cumberland. Due to the dramas of the previous years, the service was kept secret from the press, and when the story broke the following day, it made headlines across the world. After they were married, it was a huge worldwide story, and the pictures, almost everything you shot of it was any good would sell around the world. And that was a little difficult for him. He, he kind of lost his privacy down there, and Carolyn, his wife, was really had a difficult time with it. For Carolyn, the pressure of marrying into America's most famous family was there from the start. And with that pressure came the knowledge that, as we saw in the past episodes, John was always going to be a target. Here's reporter Andy Tillett. JFK Jr. had always made a point of showing how unafraid he was of any potential threats to his life, almost to the point of behaving in a deliberately reckless manner a lot of the time. But Carolyn was a different matter. She was basically just an ordinary young woman. She had not been brought up with security protection or an uncle who could pull strings with the FBI. And she had certainly never been followed around by hordes of aggressive paparazzi in the way that John had. It was an awful lot for her to take. Barry Levine also says that for Carolyn, marrying John Jr. was a bigger decision and a greater dilemma than it may have seemed. John knew that Carolyn was going to be the one. Carolyn, of course, was in love with John, but at the same time was so fearful about marrying into, you know, basically marrying the Prince of Camelot that she had long discussions with her sisters, her mom, over whether or not she could handle the pressure that would come along with being the wife of JFK Jr. And it really tore at her because this was a woman who absolutely loved John, but at the same time knew the dangers that would come along with marrying a Kennedy. Not any Kennedy from the extended Kennedy family, but JFK Jr., the son of the slain president. But At the end of the day, Carolyn Bissett's heart won out and she gave in to John. And the two were married in a, what turned out to be a private ceremony on a small island. 
off the East Coast that John took particular pride in, in terms of escaping the paparazzi. The paparazzi, of course, had followed John since he was a little boy and would, in the months leading up to the wedding, the paparazzi in New York would swarm the Tribeca apartment loft where he and Carolyn Bissett lived. And as Lawrence Schwarzfeld explains, the pressure Carolyn was under was obvious from the very start of their marriage. John introduced her to the press right after they returned home from the honeymoon. And, you know, there are probably about 40 photographers and video photographers outside the loft. And she was terrified. You see, the vein in her neck was just bulging. And I kind of knew at that point that there was going to be problems in their marriage because her visceral reaction to being in the public eye was, you know, horrific. It was, it was so apparent in her body language that, you know, I, I, I just knew that it wasn't going to work out. You know, we learned subsequently that there were so many problems in their marriage. You never know what, how it would have turned out, but it didn't look like it was going to last to me. As John and Carolyn attempted to settle into married life, Carolyn tried to develop her own strategies for coping with the constant pressures. She took a leaf from her husband's book to try and take the calm approach wherever possible. Well, I mean, he was, uh, you know, the prince of the city. Uh, People really liked him. He engaged with people, regular folks. Carolyn was much more, um, you know, an introvert in public. She didn't want to engage or even make chit-chat with photographers. And she, except once she did pose for me, which was shocking. Time magazine was uh, looking for a cover story. So I saw her and I spoke to her and and she posed for me and it became worldwide news. Time didn't use my photo, but, uh, you know, I did an interview with CBS. They ran the pictures and she was very lovely when she was like that. But there were some real crappy, disgusting (laughs) photographers who would bother them. And, you know, made her life very difficult and his difficult, but he was a tough guy. And, you know, it would roll off his shoulders uh, more easily where Carolyn was just, you know, I don't know if she would ever have adjusted to it. I think they would have eventually moved out of the city as they were rumored to have, you know, moving to Connecticut or someplace, which would have been better. But, you know, John, I think, loved the city. True crime, mysteries, trying to get to the heart of stories that have more questions than answers is my passion. I feel compelled. It's like moving the pieces of a puzzle together. With each connection, I see more of the bigger picture. That's why I like to play Best Fiends. Best Fiends is an exciting puzzle that challenges your brain while not being too difficult. Perfect for any kind of downtime, Best Fiends lets you collect adorable characters as the story advances from level to level, and you don't need an internet connection to play. Plus, they're always putting out new themed challenges, so the game is never boring. I find myself playing Best Fiends whenever I have downtime. With over 100 million downloads, I'm clearly not the only one who's obsessed. As more of my family and friends have started playing, we've gotten into some pretty friendly competitions surrounding our progress in the game, and I'm determined to come out on top. I love that it's a fun reason to keep our text chains going while we're social distancing too. Start playing today. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. 
It's hours of fun right at your fingertips. And you can even play online. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Former National Enquirer editor Barry Levine describes the tension that the paparazzi pack caused for the newlyweds. They would follow John on motorcycles, in cars. They would follow him on bikes. And he often would plead with the paparazzi, if you want pictures of me, that's fine. But let Carolyn go about her life in New York. Let Carolyn go about her job at Calvin Klein, and he would personally pleaded with members of the paparazzi for for them to give Carolyn space because he knew how difficult it was for her. He, of course, had, had grown up with cameras in his face from the time he was a little boy. All of his romances, playing Frisbee in Central Park with Daryl Hannah, going on dates to fancy restaurants in New York, John was accustomed to photographers and camera crews following him everywhere he went. He understood his position in the Kennedy family. He understood what came along with being the son of President Kennedy. But he didn't wish any of that on Carolyn Bissett. And she really had difficulty with the press in the years before the plane crash to the point where it led her into great marital strife with John. A lot of it had to do with the constant attention of every single thing she did, that she was being followed by reporters and paparazzi. And it was just overwhelming for Carolyn. There was uh, a relationship that uh, Carolyn entered into uh, with an old model, male model friend of hers. There was some drug use. All of this, we believe, the result of this public life that she had to endure and certainly had to live. Within just a few years of their fairy tale wedding, the marriage of John Jr. and Carolyn was in trouble. As Leon Wagner explains, the disintegration of their relationship was playing out in the glare of the media spotlight, including accusations of drug abuse and infidelity. They were fighting all the time, and and they fought in public for reasons best known to themselves. He was having these roaring, shouting matches with, with his wife. It was around that period that she started with his underwear model and really effectively pushed him out of her life. And he spent all of his time either at uh, the Georgia office or at the San Jose Hotel where he then lived and just avoided her until the fatal plane ride. Photographer Lawrence Schwarzwald insists the reports of the public rows and the screaming matches were vastly exaggerated. No, I've never seen uh, John and Carolyn engage in any kind of argument or noticed any friction between them. They were always 
you know, seem very comfortable with one another, uh, sometimes more affectionate than others in the times that I did see them together. But no, I never could uh, infer any problems in their relationship from what I witnessed. At the same time, George, the magazine John Jr. had launched amidst a huge fanfare of pomp and publicity years earlier, was also suffering from declining advertising sales and a falling readership. Here's Andy Tillett. George magazine really was JFK Jr.'s baby. It was a project he felt passionately about, and at first it was a huge success because, let's not pretend here, the magazine was basically a print embodiment of John himself. It was politics as an extension of celebrity, and celebrities as a branch of politics. I mean, that's him, right? That's the Kennedys, the political celebrities, the celebrity politicians. And then, after a year or two, the shine kind of wore off. The gimmick wore thin. Plus, the internet really started to kick in, the whole media landscape changed, and people just stopped buying any kind of magazines, George included. As Linda Massarella and Leon Wagner explained, the huge personal investment John Jr. had put into George meant he took the magazine's failings to heart. At that time with George, his mother was also in publishing. Creating a political magazine was something his mother could stomach. However, the way that George came out was not a political magazine. It was more of a celebrity magazine. So where, you know, John's wanting badly to do celebrity things. So his one foray into doing a political and something straight ended up becoming celebrity with Cindy Crawford on the cover. This was supposed to be a political magazine, but he kept bringing in celebrities and using it to go to parties and more celebrities. But that, that George magazine was definitely one of his mother's ideas as well, because his mother was in publishing and she was encouraging him, well, if you don't want to go into law, then you can go into media and you can go into politics. And this is your way into politics. For perhaps the first time in his life, JFK Jr. was facing the thought that perhaps he might be a failure, both in business and in marriage. And all this coming at a time when, as we have previously discovered, the FBI had investigated a plan by a ruthless cocaine cartel to snatch him from the streets of New York, hold him to ransom, and possibly even kill him, for no reason other than the fact that he was a Kennedy. Jr. needed to escape from the pressure And as Barry Levine tells us, he found it in the skies. John, of course, loved flying. He would tell Carolyn, he would tell his friends that the only time he really ever felt at peace because of having such a public life, of being followed around by photographers, he felt at peace when he was flying in the air, when he was flying through the clouds. This brought John tremendous personal joy. And that's why he wanted to get his pilot's license, why he took flying lessons, why he became obsessed with being an airplane pilot. It wasn't so much to be able to shuttle himself from one location to the next or not having to get on a commercial jet. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do with this inner peace that John felt when he was completely alone 
when he was flying through the sky on a blue, perfect sunny day. That's where John felt at ease with his world. Everything was left behind and it was just him at the controls of the plane flying through the sky, flying through the, the clouds. John was the happiest when he was at the controls of his plane. John Jr. took flying lessons at the Flight Safety Academy in Vero Beach, Florida, and in April 1998, he received his private pilot license. A year later, he received his high-performance airplane and complex airplane endorsement, meaning he was licensed to fly planes that you see at small airfields, single or twin-engine Cessnas, Pipers and the like. But that did not mean he was a fully qualified pilot. JFK historian John Hankey and air crash investigator Richard Bender explain how Junior was yet to be certified to fly at night by way of instrument only. He was working on getting his instrument license and he had passed the written exam and he had passed the performance exam and all he had to do in order to qualify for his license was to fly to log hours under the supervision of a flight instructor. I mean, he was licensed to and all that, but he didn't have an instrument rating. He was training to fly on instruments. Uh, Apparently, after talking to his instructor, he had an issue with uh, remembering what instruments he should have been looking at. He didn't have his instruments scanned down And what I mean by that is, when you fly on instruments, your main focus is on your attitude indicator in the airplane. And then it goes from there, you go to the airspeed indicator, and you you sort of do this, scanning the instrument panel. I mean, that's the correct way to do it. Apparently, he had trouble with that, according to his instructor, which is why he had set him up to take the test for his instrument rating. By July 1999, Junior had logged an estimated 310 hours of flight experience, of which 55 hours had been at night, with an instructor present sitting alongside him. In April, following his complex plane endorsement, he bought himself a Piper Saratoga aircraft. That's a six-seater, single-engine, high-performance aircraft. By the time of his final flight, he had flown a mere 36 hours in that aircraft, of which just three hours were without a certified flight instructor sitting beside him. He was still learning, building up his experience and hours. His fellow pilot, Kyle Bailey, who was also a regular at the same airport in New Jersey from which John Jr. flew. At the time, afterwards, it all came out that JFK had you know, for argument's sake, let's say a couple hundred hours. Uh, but at that time, we didn't know that. We knew he was a new pilot. I didn't know how much he was flying or if he had his instrument or his commercial rating. I just knew he showed up at the airport every Friday. He was relatively a new pilot. And, you know, I would talk to other people at the airport about, you know, encounters with him. This was a single engine airplane, so you didn't have as many gauges to look at, especially involving the engine functioning instruments, which is all part of the scan. But even though that's the case, if you don't have that scan down when you're flying on the instruments, you can get in trouble real easy because your brain is telling you 
you're in one position, when in actuality, you're in some other position. And that's what they call spatial disorientation. Richard Bender explains why an instrument rating is crucial to safe flying, especially at night. Well, the attitude indicator is an instrument that shows whether the airplane's straight and level, banking one way or the other, turning in other words, descending or climbing. And it's, uh, you know, it's a very simple instrument, but it's survivability. And one of the things, the first things I learned about flying was you always want to make sure that that thing's straight and level unless you're coming in for a landing or because it's so easy, especially in this area and in this kind of weather, you can get into that hot, hazy, humid type of night, day or night. And when it gets dark, it usually brings fog. And again, you lose all reference to the ground. Well, see, the problem is, especially with a, a, what we call a VFR pilot, visual flight rules pilot, he doesn't have that knowledge to be able to focus on that and believe what it tells you. The biggest problem with pilots are, especially a VFR pilot, in instrument conditions, if he doesn't believe what the uh, instruments are telling him, then he's got a real problem. If he doesn't believe it, he's going to follow what his body's telling him. And if his body is telling him he's straight and level, he's going to think he's straight and level because he sees it, even though he might see it on the attitude indicator, he's not believing that. It's sad to describe it, but, uh, you know, that's what happens. I've had it happen to me maybe once or twice in 30 years of flying, but uh, it does happen. John Jr.'s Piper Saratoga was not the only means by which he escaped the stresses of a failing magazine and a failing marriage. A mere two months before his death, Junior treated himself to another flying machine, a lightweight, Buckeye-powered, motorised parachute, more commonly known as an ultralight paraglider. These machines need a real skill to fly them. Andy Tillett explains. These kind of ultralight aircraft look like a kind of flying chair with a parachute above it. They're powered by an engine behind the pilot with the controls at your feet, kind of like paragliding but sitting down and with a motor. And although they might look to most sane people like death traps, the inclusion of the parachute means there's actually an additional level of safety there. If something does go wrong with the engine, then the idea is you can simply glide safely back down to the ground with the parachute. But even with this additional level of safety, they still come down. In May 1999, John Jr. crashed his ultralight in Martha's Vineyard, breaking his ankle badly. His injury was serious enough to hinder his flying and cause protracted medical treatment as well as medication. His work colleagues recall he was in a bad way. His flight instructors noted he had trouble multitasking. He was stuck, wearing a heavy cast and had to use crutches right up until his final flight. Here's Leon Wagner and Barry Levine. He had been aerogliding and had fallen and had really damaged his right leg. So his right leg was in a uh, cast, which would clearly impede your ability to fly an airplane, especially if you're the only pilot. 
he was impaired by a physical injury. He had just had a cast off on his foot from a paragliding injury that he had. But he needed the cast off his foot so he could operate the plane's rudder foot pedals. So 24 hours before the, the flight, John had the cast taken off. And in fact, he was limping. He was seen by eyewitnesses limping at the airport. He was also photographed. And the Inquirer turned up the last picture of him, sadly, which was the night before when John was on crutches attending a Yankees baseball game. But on this particular night, as I said, John, the day before, had the cast taken off his foot. He was still limping from that injury. Fellow pilot Kyle Bailey was the last man to see John Jr. alive and also witnessed him hobbling around with his ankle injury as Jr. boarded his final flight. Unsure of how it affected Junior's performance, Kyle talks us through what he saw. Could Junior's injury have hindered his flying? There really wasn't any visible impairment from his ankle injury other than a slight limp is what I saw. He kind of was pretty much hobbling around. And from my understanding, even with that type of injury uh, and, you know, as a pilot, that would affect the, the control of the of the rudders possibly, but it, it wouldn't be something as critical as, say, a broken arm or something where you can't use both your hands, one on the throttle and one on the yoke. So in my mind, that was always secondary, and I kind of viewed that injury, you know, looking back on it as pretty insignificant too, as, as far as what, what the, the, the outcome was of, of the airplane being destroyed. We shall see just how significant it really was as we dig deeper into the flight analysis to find out what really happened up there in the dark sky above Martha's Vineyard, the location of his ultralight crash only nine weeks previous. Next time on Fatal Voyage, the death of JFK Jr., the crash and the conspiracy theories. It became a huge story. I would say it it could only be equaled with the death of Princess Diana or a major, major tragedy. I can't think of anything as big as JFK Jr.'s plane crash. And of course, this absolutely terrorized the Kennedy family. It terrorized his sister, Caroline Kennedy, who just immediately began having flashbacks of their father's death. So was there a possible reason to take John F. Kennedy out? Yes, absolutely. The Death of JFK Jr. is hosted by myself, Colin McLaren. It's executive produced by Dylan Howard and Matt Sprouse and is a production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavour Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson and Andy Tillett and the series is written by Dominic Gutton. Reporting by Douglas Montero, the series is mixed and engineered by Sean Kravitz and Sam Adder. There is so much more to this story and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Fatal Voyage, The Death of JFK Jr. wherever you get your podcasts. 